University Choir. Uh, one of the things that has blessed my life today is not only that they were on musically, but uh, that if you watch their faces, uh, you get the feeling they know the Savior that they're singing about. And that's really important, isn't it? And uh, they sang about running the race. Our sermon series for the Lenten season is uh, Run the Race. And actually, this is the scripture for the entire sermon series during the season of Lent. I don't think, I, I tried to think back in my mind, I don't think in all of my ministry I have uh, ever preached the same two verses for an entire sermon series, uh, let alone a, a special season like Lent or Advent. But we're going to take these two powerful verses each Sunday and try to turn them uh, at different angles and see different phrases and different applications of truth. And this is Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1 and reading verse 2. And even though it's on the screen now, you might want to look in your own Bible, your own app, uh, and follow along and have it open as we make reference to it throughout the morning. Listen prayerfully. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Run the race. That's what my bracelet says. That's what your bracelet says if you have one or if you pick one up. The theme of worship during Lent. Run the race. I don't know if you realize it, but our New Testament is full of images and metaphors regarding sports. Uh, there are several of them scattered throughout, especially Paul's writings in Hebrews. We just read those words about running with per perseverance the race that is set before us. The first century Roman Greco world took its sports very, very seriously. We know that. Uh, because we still can see some of their arenas, some of their amphitheaters, uh, some of the archaeology that's been dug up. We know that they invested a lot of time and money in sports arenas, and they, they, when they read words like this, they got it, that we are to run the race because we are surrounded by faithful witnesses in the stands, in the bleachers, in the balcony of our lives. Uh, and really now, who better than Kansas City Chiefs fans to understand that analogy, right? <laughs> I mean, really, just it's less than a month ago. We're still in the afterglow of all of that, knowing the difference that a crowd of people can make inspiring the athlete down on the field to do the very, very best possible. There's power in that, and, it, and it's something we saw in, in beautiful fashion uh, just a few weeks ago. The, uh, the, the scripture starts, uh, and we sometimes rush past the opening phrase, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, since we, therefore, based on what's already happened, the therefore, remember I've told you before, the therefore is there so you will look and see what goes before it, what just was written down, the therefore is so that you'll look back and see what the therefore is there for, right? And chapter 11 of Hebrews, ideally I would have read the entire 11th chapter 
that preceded this, but let me just give you the Cliff's Notes. Let me just give you the 30-second summary of, of Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of the faithful. And these names hook back into the greatest stories of our Hebrew scriptures, mentioning Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and on and on. These wonderful, faithful people, because they are in our bleachers, because they are our cloud of witnesses, then we are to run the race. And I love the way the Hebrews author finishes up this 11th chapter, just before the text that I read. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 36, Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that last phrase. The world was not worthy of their great, great witness. This powerful reality that these witnesses are in the arena, that, that it matters that they are there cheering for us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Heard the story of a middle school teacher who was uh, beginning a new unit of instruction in social studies and she wanted uh, the children, the students to really enter into the experience. And so she asked them one day to be thinking about their earliest childhood memory. She gave them a little time to think about it, and then they were to share their very earliest childhood memory. And the predictable uh, eventually was mentioned, uh, uh, a dog that, that my family had, or uh, going to the beach or to the lake uh, with a grandma, or riding a pony, uh, any, uh, any number of things were mentioned. And then there was one little boy in the church, uh, I, I'm sorry, in the school, in the classroom, a, a boy named Tommy. And he was uh, of the Jewish faith. And uh, when the teacher called on Tommy, she said, what's your earliest childhood memory? Without even hesitating, he said, Abraham. Abraham. Because he had been steeped in the faith that hooks back deep into the communal history of who he was and to whom he belonged. And he understood that the bleachers around his life had that, had that cheering going on at the very beginning of the Abrahamic faith. This cheering section that we all have. Bible characters and then sort of spilling over into just people from our own lives or people who lived uh, maybe 100 or 200 years ago but who inspire us. Uh, I love the story that... Uh, Perry Sanders uh, told, he, he was a great uh, pastor in Louisiana. Uh, his church had reached this woman for Christ. She had been away from the Lord, a long way away from the Lord. She repented and came to Christ, and when she did, she was just so hungry spiritually. She was just soaking up the Bible stories. And then they started talking, because it was near Christmas time, about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for global missions. And they told the story of who Lottie Moon was, that she was a missionary to China and she lived unselfishly. And in fact, she died on a ship 
Christmas Eve, 1912. And the Christmas offering in Baptist churches all over the world uh, is named after her, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And this woman was just enraptured with that story, and she was sharing her faith with a non-believer. And she told this non-believer a couple of Bible stories. And then she mentioned Lottie Moon, and this lady stopped her, and she said, Lottie Moon, I've never heard of her. And this new convert was so indignant. You've never heard of Lottie Moon? Woman, read your Bible. Yeah, and it's interesting how it all sort of fuzzes out. It all kind of becomes one. The people in our bleachers, the, the ones who inspire us. Uh, it, it, sometimes we even forget whether they are Bible characters or just people who have personally inspired us. But this, this whole concept of a cloud of witnesses, cloud uh, signifying maybe a little mystery. We, I don't understand the theology of all this, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I've heard people say, you know, that the cloud of witness, witnesses can see everything going on on earth. I personally don't hold to that because if they could see everything going on on earth, it wouldn't be heaven, would it? And uh, so I don't know about that, but I like what F.F. F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, has said about this passage. He said, the emphasis is not on whether they can see us. The emphasis is on we can see them. And they inspire us. And they encourage us. And they bless us. I mean, think about it. That those who've gone before us are now examples and exhorters and encouragers and inspirations to us. Something happened before we got here. Everybody age 30 and younger this morning should make note of that. Something happened before you got here. You didn't, invert, you didn't invent earth. Uh, there was stuff here before you arrived. And there were people who lived tenaciously for Jesus when it cost them greatly. Something happened before we arrived. G.K. Chesterton once said, if you want to know the size of the church, you need to count the tombstones. Count the tombstones. Because... Something happened before we were here and some people lived faithfully. And a simple lesson from all of that is that the past needs to be our mentor, not our master. Right? Because if the, if the past is our master, we're enslaved by it, we're boxed in by it, we're limited by it. But if the past is our mentor, then we learn from it, we're inspired by it, and we go forward living it joyfully. You ever wonder why God does so much teaching in Scripture around stories of people? Have you ever thought about the fact that one, one way God could have handled Scripture is to just hand down a book of commandments, some philosophical ideas about being courageous. Thou shalt not quit. Thou shalt not give up when the going is tough. Or just simply run the race. What if there were no stories to surround those teachings? Why are there stories to, uh, to surround this teaching? Why does chapter 11 precede chapter 12 of Hebrews? The answer, I think, is that our lives are story-shaped. We really plug into stories. We can all relate to stories. 
And we, we, can, we can suddenly get inspired by a story when a simple uh, principle doesn't do much for us. A simple uh, aphorism doesn't really excite us. And there's another reason that I think there are stories about the faithful in the balcony and in the stadium around us. It's because if all you had was Bible verses, somebody would say, well, you know, who wrote the Bible? You know, I'm not so sure I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, there, and all these arguments about the Bible, but when you start pointing to a person, a group of people who lived the faith tenaciously in the toughest of times, nobody can argue with that. Nobody can challenge that. Because you and I begin to say to ourselves, you know what? I'm not the first person who's ever gone through this. They went through this and they survived. Jesus worked for them. Maybe Jesus can work for me. They made it through. Maybe we can make it through. And those stories inspire and teach us. Dr. David Gushy is a, an ethics professor, and he recently wrote, co-wrote uh, this book, Moral Leadership in a Divided Age. Uh, some of us had the privilege at a workshop here at the church a few weeks ago to be on video conference with Dr. Gushy, uh, and he talked about the book and the 14 people who are featured in this book uh, talking about ethics and moral leadership. And Dr. Gushy said after more than 20 years of teaching ethics at a bachelor's and master's and doctoral level, he had discovered that the best way to teach ethics is not by teaching ideals and the history of philosophy, but the best way to teach ethics is in story. Here are the lives in the stands, in the stadium around us, and learn from them. We learn as we, as we sense their aura of courage and as we, as we move through the struggles in our own lives. We run the race because others have been able to run the race. I was visiting with Rod Maples, our worship pastor, about this sermon series. And in fact, later in the sermon series, we're going to show a video interview that I do with Rod about his marathon running because there are a lot of spiritual uh, lessons and connections to marathon running. And uh, as we sat down to prepare for this, he told me a great story, and I tell this with his permission. Uh, he was running a marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, he was running, and at a critical point in the, in the marathon, he started hearing people yell, Hey, St. Louis, go! Run, St. Louis! And he, he realized that that morning he'd put on a St. Louis t-shirt. And when he started hearing, Hey, St. Louis, run! He realized, they're talking to me. And, and I think his chest pushed out a little further. And, and Rod said that all of a sudden he became aware of the fact that he was running faster than he was supposed to be running. Because, you know, a runner knows how to pace himself or herself. And so he checked his Garmin. And sure enough, he was running faster than he was supposed to be running at that point. But he kept going. And guess what? He ran so well. That's the race where he qualified for the Boston Marathon. Isn't that amazing? Because he heard voices. He heard the encouragement. And he realized that it was possible that he could do it. In this book, Dr. Gushy uh, talks about 
the challenges that these 14 people faced. Uh, and in the video conference, we asked him to elaborate on those hardships. And I want you to listen to what he said. He said, there was, a, there was a pattern that I found among all of the people that we studied. Many of them battled depression and discouragement. They were not always upbeat. They were not always positive about being able to succeed and finish the race. He said that one thing drove them to complete the race. And that was a, a sense of calling that detached them from the present obstacles and attached them to the finish line. There was this sense of calling that said, whatever obstacle I am facing now is not final. And they refused to stop because of the present trouble. And something deep within them was calling them to the finish line. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us.